without invoking God or any sort of uh, myth, you give meaning to human life. What is man's purpose? To advance and preserve novelty. You know, this is an ethical position. It means you don't replace rainforests with pastures. You don't censor books. You don't uh, lean on people who make gender choices different from yours. It, no, the purpose of, of being a human is to complexify reality even more, to hand on a more diverse, more complicated, more multifaceted universe to our children. And when this process of complexification reaches the Omega point, uh, it, it, will, it will fulfill I believe the expectations of all of these religions, but it will fulfill it in a mature, scientific, and, uh, and universal way that these religions all lack because they all reflect their parochial origins. Yeah, welcome to War Machine. My name is Matt, and a few days ago, Petra Carlson, Justin Pearl, and I, we had a chance to hang out and basically watch and comment on a Terrence McKenna video. It can be found on YouTube, um, along with all his other amazing videos on YouTube. It's actually the final one he gave back in 99, just a few months before his death in 2000. And yeah, we had a lot of fun. We got about halfway through it. So there will be a second part to this, hopefully soon. And I don't know. Yeah, it's really great to be back doing this. You know, when Preston wasn't uh, able to do the show anymore, I really thought a lot about, uh, is this something I want to do solo? And for a number of reasons, I decided, no, it's not. So when Petra agreed to come on board, I was really excited and um, have more, a little bit more to say about that uh, coming up with a little bit more fanfare. And yeah, we've got some good things coming. Uh, we're talking to Federico in a few weeks again about his most recent book. We're talking to Cameron Carter in a few weeks. We've got a few other things in the works. So yeah, some things to look forward to. All right, Joe, here is Terrence McKenna with Patrick Carlson and Justin Pearl. Peace.
Do you guys know each other? Uh, no, just do like forum stuff and posting and I've been watching your videos. <laughs> oh, nice. They're wonderful. Um, I just got a request for a video that will be played on King's College on the roof of King's College on next Friday. I was really happy about that because they wanted to make wanted me to make a video on the, the Pussy Riot. They're having a kind of a theme party or something. And so I was really happy to be like the artist. <laughs> Will you do it in a um, face mask, ski mask? <laughs> I, I think you should. I, I actually plan. Yeah, I think I will. But I, and I think I will take it off like uh, halfway through or something. Right. Uh, in the baklava. A balaclava. Balaclava, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyone can claim being a member of the Pussy Riot. So I thought I could just say I'm, I'm a member. <laughs> as long as you perform uh, their idea you're like part of it i like that i like that idea and i like that too they're setting a big table aren't they <laughs> <laughs> yep yeah we're all free to join <laughs> yeah that reminds me of uh what's his name um he was part of like the discordian movement and they basically gave out cards making everyone an official pope of discordianism <laughs> it's yeah. everyone's the pope now robert anton wilson there it is thank you yeah, I've been since I'm doing it. I just started working on this little film for the Pussy Riot film, and I got into like the Dada movement. And mm. yeah, I I really feel that there's so much more to do gin to there, and I think that that Pope movement because they also had this uh, that you could uh, sign up to become Christ. So, yeah. so it's like everyone, I but I think you have to pay like five bucks or something. Of course, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a reasonable price. I, I feel like yeah, anyone, anyone who's interested in becoming Christ has at least five dollars to spare. Yeah, <laughs> it's not nearly the cost that like Jesus had to pay for it. So, Amen, Amen. <laughs> That'll preach. <laughs> yeah, we're recording, right? <laughs> I, yeah, some youth pastor is going to use that. Okay. Uh, um. So yeah, before we jump into the video, should we do some um, quick introductions? Justin, want to tell people who you are? Yeah, my name is Justin Pearl. I'm the director of the Atkins Center for Ethics at Carlo University. Uh, and I'm a longtime listener, so I'm just happy to be here. Awesome. Yeah. And we've known each other for several years through the Radical Theology Discussion Forum. Yes. And yeah. Oh, and you're also my dungeon, my current dungeon master. <laughs> I am. Yes. Yes. We are out in London uh, fighting ghouls and monsters. <laughs> yeah. Some Lovecraft themes, RPG stuff. And Petra Crossan also is here. How are you, Petra? Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, I'm uh, in Stockholm where it's evening and dark in Sweden, and uh, I'm a, a professor of systematic theology at Stockholm School of Theology. And I'm also in the Radical Theology Forum. Do you mm-hmm. want to a few books? Yeah. Yeah, no, I've been a reader of yours for um, for a while, you know, going back to Mysticism as Revolt. I actually have, I, sh- I wanted to talk to you about that book back then. Um, so we'll have to maybe like circle back to that at some point, but we have a big, uh, we've actually already announced it. Very excited to announce that today she joins War Machine, not only as a guest, she's our new co-host. <laughs> I'd never asked you this. Why'd you agree to, uh, 
<laughs> to do this? <laughs> oh, it's easy. I, it's because I just I just accepted to be dean at, at my faculty, and I was just uh, so sick of all the kind of administrative responsibilities that I felt that I I need to say yes to anything that feels creative and fun and that will enable some deep thinking and creative and experimental thinking. So uh, when you asked me, I did not hesitate. Yeah, because I, and I really enjoyed the way in which these discussions at the War Machine have been going. And it's just, uh, yeah, I just feel like something I want to do. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited and happy that you're here and really looking forward to whatever, uh, whatever comes next. few weeks back, I was doing some dishes in my kitchen, listening to a Terrence McKenna interview on YouTube, which is something I've been doing for a few years. Um, and I thought it was a really interesting talk. It kind of got me thinking in a lot of different directions. And I, I had the thought it would be, it would be a lot of fun to watch this with some friends and just comment on it and, you know, talk about whatever's interesting in it. And so, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And if I'm understanding right, neither of you are familiar with McKenna. Is that right? Yeah, not so much. Yeah, I think I've, I've uh, watched a couple, like, you know, YouTube videos and he sort of, the way you sort of osmosis him from, uh, you know, when you're an undergrad, you sort of necessarily <laughs> stumble upon his videos at various times. Yeah. Um, but I've never seriously looked into his work or anything like that. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think not many people have, honestly. He's kind of like fringe uh academia fringe society so this is basically going to be a reaction episode at least for justin um because you haven't seen this but petra you watched this do you want to make any like preliminary comments like general thoughts or whatever i just felt like watching that was like doing a bit of a time travel i think and i really enjoyed that also a bit of a travel to some kind of hobbit land or you know i i He's, he has this kind of wizard-like character about him that I felt that I had kind of forgotten that we used to have those kind of prophets around. So, and, and also like the way in which he talks about the future, which we are now in. And yeah, no, I was really, uh, I was uh, happily surprised, I must say, because I didn't really know what to expect when I started watching it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find him just to be kind of an adorable character. And he has this little like, you'll hear it like nasally voice, which would normally be kind of annoying maybe, but he speaks so eloquently and calmly and with this, this particular like cadence that I find very sort of hypnotizing and relaxing. So yeah, you can also watch him because he has these, these beautiful eyes that look kind of like Groucho Marx or something. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched a lot of Marx videos growing up because my dad was a huge fan. I never th had the thought that he had beautiful eyes, but I'll, I might have to go back and... Yeah, owl-like. Owl-like. What's the name of that bird? Oh, owl. Owl-like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Owl, yeah. Nice. So I pulled a couple of uh, facts for people who might not be familiar with uh, McKenna at all. I just got pulled these right off of Wikipedia. He was an American ethnobotanist and he advocated for the responsible use of naturally occurring psychedelic plants. He spoke and he spoke and wrote about a variety of subjects, including psychedelic drugs, entheogens, shamanism, metaphysics, alchemy, uh, language, philosophy, culture, technology, environmentalism, 
and the theoretical origins of human consciousness. He was like the Timothy Leary of the 90s, one of the leading authorities on the ontological foundations of shamanism and the intellectual voice of rave culture. There's a lot more. Uh, I'll link to some stuff so you can check it out, but he's like sort of a very, I don't know, eclectic, maybe interdisciplinary thinker. I, I what I appreciate, I, I think he's like a trickster character. He doesn't, he doesn't do one thing, you know, in terms of mechanics, how do you guys want to do it? You want to just start talking when you want to pause the video? We could do that. We could do a hand, like the little hand raisey tool. Let's try just, just shouting at me and see if that works. <laughs> yeah, so, so we just play it and then when we have something to say we shout exactly all right so there we go yes it works you know they had to tell him hey go back there in the jungle and then just walk towards us well, novelty theory is something I've been working on since the early 70s, uh, inspired by psychedelic plant experiences in the Amazon to attempt to look at time and really deconstruct it and attempt to understand what it is. And this has been a wild intellectual ride. Uh, leading to some pretty easily stated conclusions. Uh, one is that novelty, which is my term for complexity or advanced organization, novelty increases as we approach the present moment. The universe you and I are living in is a far more novel and complicated place than the early universe was. Well, some people would say, well, that's just a consequence of the unfolding of developmental processes. But this asks the question, what are developmental processes? Why should the universe have a preference for order over disorder? Especially when we have something called the second law of thermodynamics, which tells us exactly the opposite. Physicists believe the universe is running down ultimately into a state of disorder. But what I see is everywhere the emergence of more and more complex forms, languages, organisms, technologies, always building on the previously achieved levels of complexity. So that was one of my insights. Coming out of that insight was the first. I, thank you. I didn't shout, but I waved my hand. So that's I saw it. I saw it. It worked. Yeah, good, great. Uh, I, I just, uh, I just want to like stop here in the beginning because he just goes on and on like this. So I know that I just have to break in. And and what is because what is here already in this, uh, in the beginning is of course, the fact that he just turns around whatever you would expect from uh, in like a theological or Christian setting that that the universe is kind of created perfectly from the start and that his idea of novelty is just this. A crazy um, complexity, increased complexity that that uh, kind of is what what makes us well creates our reality. And uh, I, I guess I, I just I just wanted to to like underline that to <laughs> to note that he's actually turning completely turning the Christian story upside down. And and yet I think there's there's like these weird sort of marginal Christian figures that I think 
want to work along these sorts of lines. So I'm thinking of somebody like like Ty Hard, uh, De Chardin, uh, yes. with this idea of the cosmic Christ, or even certain readings of Hegel. This has a sort of developmental or progressivist movement. And so there's 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 something um, I think really importantly theological here, even if it's not sort of like Orthodox Christian, which I think is 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 really really helpful. Yeah, true. And in that sense, I guess, I mean, Hegel and those kinds of thinkers who are actually trying to deal with, with the fact that ideas like pre-formation theory and, and those kind of classical dogmatic ideas that had been uh, turned over and you just couldn't believe in them in, anymore. And then, and then you had to kind of just Christianize these kind of ideas that he's uh, exploring here, like the kind of uh, increased levels of complexity, which uh, yeah, as you say, have turned also uh, into Christian orthodoxy, but that kind of happened later. Yeah, and and I think that, like, at least for me, what I, I find really appealing about this kind of approach um, is that there's there's not the, the fear of of like movement and development in change, I think in what he's describing that I think you often find. Um, so I, I, I think you see this really strong in, in the romantic impulse that you see in, in certain rhetorics around ecology, for example, with this idea that yes. we have to get back to nature. And, this, and it's always this idea of returning to the primordial. Uh, and I think what, what is, is appealing to me about somebody, about what McKenna is saying here is the way that, you know, he has this sort of, you know, um, uh, sort of ecological aesthetic, you know, he's literally, you know, he's, he's climbing out of the jungle in order to give this interview. And yet at the same time, he is, he is refusing that back to nature idea, um, which I think creates this, this really sharp sort of anthropocentric divide, which I find, I, I find kind of appealing here. It's amazing how much is coming out already, not even two minutes in, right? Already you've kind of picking up on the theological thread which is not foregrounded in McKenna at all. In fact, when he later on, I think he'll he'll make a reference to God, and then immediately immediately backs off it. But I think, yeah, the theological aspect of his thinking is really interesting to explore. It's never just one thing, like I said earlier, right? It's, it's technological, it's theological, it's ecological, it's metaphysical, all at the same time. And I I, I love that about him. Further understanding that this process of complexification through time is not proceeding at a steady rate. It actually follows a kind of asymptotic curve. In other words, it's happening faster and faster. And this was a revelation to me because it allowed me philosophically to contextualize the human world and to understand that human technologies, languages, migrations, art movements, idiocy. Okay, that is such a new materialist move to just start listing off a whole bunch of stuff like that. <laughs> I, yeah, I think he's in a way, but then he's also kind of a kind of a new idealist, I think. Yes, yes. Finally, yeah. And, and he has these kind of universal claims with which I mean it is a grand theory that he's presenting and although I agree completely with what you just said before Justin that uh, that the way in which he uh, refuses to go back to to romantic ideas about the origin or like the natural man natural woman or, or you know all of those kind of normative ideas that come go along with with going back to nature back to normality back origin uh, he refuses that but but I mean he still does end up being this kind of prophet of a new 
grand narrative, I think. We'll see. Theologies are not something different from nature. They're the same uh, download of process that we see in the movement of continents, the evolution of new species of animals, except that these human novel emergent situations are happening much more quickly. So I see the cosmos, if you will, as a kind of novelty-producing engine, a kind of machine which produces complexity in all realms, physical, chemical, social, whatever, and then uses that achieved level of complexity as the platform for further complexity. Well, this explains our present circumstance. It explains the rush toward all forms of new technology and social organization in the new millennium. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that if the universe is complexifying faster and faster, um, a epoch, a time will come when this rate of complexification is occurring so rapidly that it will become itself the overwhelming phenomena in the world of three-dimensional space and time. And I call this the omega point or the transcendental object at the end of history. And I believe... The omega point, that's straight up um, the Chardin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. If it is yeah, not I believe that... that. I believe so. Yeah. far off, that with the emergence of a global internet, a human population of several billions, an electronic newosphere, uh, that we are now within the shadow of this transcendental object at the end of time. Our religions sense it. That's what gives them their apocalyptic intuitions. And I think the ordinary man and woman in the street sense a kind of built-in acceleration to time itself. Well, rather than dismissing that or treating it as... These are the kind of quotes that I, I feel are so... Like, before uh, it's time... When, when was this? When was this? This was 99. Um, just a few months, a few months before he died in 2000. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, he, he's talking about like sensing, sensing the apocalypse and, and uh, I mean, and in a way, I just feel that that's the way that, I mean, everyone is so anthropocentric to want to be living in like the, the time when it actually happens, when huh. we actually face the apocalypse and all of that. And still, I, I, I think that the, his uh, acceleration and his, the accelerationalist uh, idea and just the way in which he explained. I actually feel that, yeah, maybe he's right. <laughs> you know, things are happening faster and faster. And, and that is a that is a big issue. And and time and the way in which we we uh, experience time itself uh, is uh, maybe in fact even changing. I have that feeling a lot when listening to him, even, even when he starts to sound like really kind of kooky you know i'm like i still have this like well maybe he's right though <laughs> yeah i know yeah and the way in which i mean life is is just speeding up i'm also i've been thinking about that lately in relation to like zoom meetings and stuff you know when you've been on zoom meetings 
during the pandemic, you kind of feel, ah, oh, it's nice not to have to travel, you save some time. And then I feel now when life is slowly going back to normal, you try to do both so that you're like Zoom meeting on your way to the other, to the physical meeting. Or, you know, so, so it's like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's being, this crazy, this crazy speeding up of, of things, uh, you know, just. That point on acceleration, it's a different kind of accelerationism though, isn't it? Than what's typically understood as, right? It's not at like a historical event or a political event. It's, it's all those things, but it's, um, I think for McKenna, it's, it sounds like it's like, I don't know what to call it, like a metaphysical accelerationism. Yeah, yeah, I think definitely. But, but, but then he also makes these kind of examples from, mm. from actual life, which I find, I'm not sure, I'm not so convinced that you know, if if time would actually be speeding up, you know, mm-hmm. physically, would I then sense that? Like in, and would we see that in human works of art, for instance? I mean, isn't that kind of what he's implying when he's referring also to like literature and art? And uh, and I'm not so sure that I, <laughs> you know, this is just that just seems if that was actually happening, would would we notice it on such particular levels? Mm-hmm. And I think that like, maybe for me at least, and, and again, we're still really early in this video, but what is what is maybe a little bit missing is the economic dimension, which I think is something that's that's really important if we want to think about, uh, you know, he wants to talk a lot about the um, the speed of technology and the way that, that the speed of technology is creating this sense of time moving faster. And I think that there's a certain way in which you really can't divorce that from like the movement of capitalism, right? Like it's the part, at least part of this conversation about what it means that it feels like time is speeding up has to at least include a nod to the fact that we are, you know, around the 200th or so year of like of capitalism in in full steam um, and neoliberalism is, you know, approaching its 40th year or 50th year. Uh, and so, I think this has to be part of the conversation as well that I think tends there there tends to be an allergy I think to this sort of economic thinking um, in 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 the sort of more new agey uh, romantic approach um, I think possibly as a as an allergy to to um, sort of mid century like Marxists and and how insufferable they were um, and and but but I want to bring some of that back and think about what does um, what does what does economics and what does capitalism have to say about the way that this this move this sense that time is speeding up. Um, what does it have to, what, it, what might it have to speak into that? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe he will get into that if we let him talk. But but it's, but yes, I, I just wanted to say that I realized that my example was precisely the kind of capitalist uh, acceleration that, I mean, that that's the acceleration of capitalism that I'm experiencing when I'm on a Zoom meeting on my way to a physical meeting. Yeah, maybe we'll let him talk for a a little bit longer, or we'll, or we'll never get through this thing. <laughs> it's a psychological perception or something unique to our society. I took it as a basic perception about physics and uh, have built elaborate, mathematically defined theories around this idea and then have found, to my astonishment, incredible congruences with other work. I'm thinking of the Mayan calendar and its uh, curious countdown-like quality toward an extremely unique event that 
the Maya felt would occur in the same time frame that my own equations predicted, even though at the time I was unaware of the Maya. So what we have here is a, a new model of time based on a very real intuition that I think most people share, which is that time is speeding up, that human beings are part of that process, and that the culmination of that process is now within the, the van of historical time. In other words, I, I believe it will happen in 2012, in December, coincident with the same events that the Maya placed at the end of their calendar. Uh, okay, so I just have to say, I remember sitting in mid, like middle school, I think I was in seventh grade, and my, one of my teachers, I forget what class it was, but one of my teachers was talking about how the, the world was going to end in 2012. And at the time, I didn't realize that there was this connection to McKenna. But he, he kind of popularized that whole apocalyptic, Mayan apocalyptic idea, which I think is really interesting. And it's hard, it's hard for me to take seriously. I've been going through um, uh, Ed Simon's uh, America and Other Fictions, uh, which is just a really great collection of essays. Um, and, you know, he's really interested in apocalyptic sex throughout history. Uh, and so it's just funny to, you know, you know, 1666, you've got people who are like, this is the end of the world. And then, you know, in the 1830s, this is the end of the world. In 1907, this is the end of the world. In 1945, this is the end of the world. And so uh, I, I find it really hard to take these sort of um, apocalyptic predictions uh, with any sense of seriousness, um, just because there's just been thousands and thousands of people who've made uh, similar concrete claims and to, uh, to little avail, it, it at least seems. Yeah. yeah, especially now a few years after. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah, it's easy to sit here in 2021 and be like, oh, what, what a goofball. But I mean, like he was doing like an interesting thing with it. It wasn't just like straight up, well, Maybe some people would argue with this, but it wasn't just kind of like textual interpretation. He was doing mathematics. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I just think it's fascinating to come up with like a similar sort of thesis. But yeah, his, his apocalypticism is, I think, a really interesting um, aspect Calendar. of it. Even if I'm wrong, even if it's 100 years or 500 years later, these are still spans of time that when compared to the life of the planet are, are fractions of a percentage. So whether you believe as I do that we can know the precise moment of this transformation of the world of time, or whether you believe it is simply coming soon and fast really doesn't make that much difference. We are all gathered here at the end game of developmental processes on this planet. We are about to become unrecognizable to ourselves as a species. Uh, our technologies, our religions, uh, our science has pushed us toward this for thousands of years without us awakening to what the denouement would be. Now we stand close enough to it that I think all but the most lumpen among us must feel the tug of the transcendental and the transformative. I am very perplexed when you say that time is speeding up. As far as I can tell, um, such things as crystal oscillators, things which keep time, um, clocks, 
the, the relationship of uh, the earth turning to the calendar, the full moon, all of the things which um, are symptoms of our passage through time don't seem to be throwing themselves out of kilter. So how, how, how what can you, can you, do you really mean about time speeding up? Well, let me answer in the form of a question. Which lasts longer, a million years in which nothing happens or 10 seconds with 50,000 events crammed into it? In other words, uh, uh, really time is only experienced by the events which occur within it. And I maintain that the early universe had very little going on. And consequently, uh, time moved very, very slowly. Uh, the character of time as we approach the present is that there are more and more uh, what physical domains and energetic domains in which change can occur. For example, the early universe was a pure plasma a pure swarm of unassociated electrons. You didn't even have atomic systems, let alone chemistry, molecular chemistry, life, complex speciated life, and uh, dynamically balanced planetary ecosystems. Each one of those more complex phenomena crystallized out or emerged, if you will, from the previous uh, uh, systems that had come into existence. So when I say time is speeding up, what I mean really is that more and more is happening. More and more is happening. And if you ask the question, well, what would be the ultimate state of connectivity or of happening? It's when all points are connected to all other points. Somehow this concept of connectivity is intimately linked to the concept of complexity. And so really what I'm saying is that the universe is getting its act together. It's connecting the dots. It's bringing everything into co-relationship with everything else. And somehow it does this through the production of consciousness. Consciousness is this integrative function in biology which takes data which may appear profoundly unrelated, and in fact brings it into some kind of a congruent relationship. We say an organism coordinates a point of view. Well, in a way, what's happening over time is that the universe is coordinating a point of view. And as it does this, it becomes somehow more aware, more self-conscious, more uh, being-like and less thing-like. And, <coughs> and as I said, the process is not proceeding at a steady pace. It's proceeding faster and faster. More connectivity occurs now in a calendar year than occurred in a million you, years. Before you got into that, uh, the universe uh, consciousness part, I, I actually thought of of uh, Catherine Keller's, uh, not not the last, but the second last book, uh, and the the jets uh, site, uh, the Walter Benjamin's uh, now time, like the time is contracted, uh, mm -hmm. the notion of 
of uh, the apocalyptic time or the end of time being like a contraction of time, which I think uh, Keller also discusses in relation to the way in which we experience the pressure of climate crisis right now, that the now uh, just becomes filled with all of these, uh, well, entangled and the, the awareness of, of the being, uh, of us being entangled with everything and that kind of the end is near and, and that uh, that kind of pressure on the moment also enables us to see the way in which we are connected to everything. I think that the way in which he explains that now is really similar to the to the way in which uh, uh, ecological thinkers today use the uh, Walter Benjamin's uh, jets site. But, but then he of course ends up with this conscious universe being. Yeah, I, I had a, a sort of a similar insight in thinking about the the way he talks about this acceleration of time because it's it in some ways I, I had had a similar idea of, of thinking about it through like the language of, of something like density. Um, yeah. where when he talks about it, it, it feels less like time is 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 moving faster um, and more like there's like uh, an increased density to time, which I, I find uh, really really interesting. That that the the events are sort of piling up one on the other. Um, again, I think that the the difficulty for for this sort of thesis is is that you can't experience what it was like, you know, to live uh, in the 19th century. Did they feel like events were piling one on top of the other uh, for themselves? Is there, there's always that question for me at least of is, are, are we truly living at a time where things are really accelerating or are we like every time period, the ones who believe we're in the time where things are accelerating? Because it seemed like, you know, Hegel thought time was accelerating for him. Uh, and that, he, uh, you know, the founding fathers thought, thought that time was accelerating in the, in the birth of America or, or in the French Revolution with the French, uh, with the, the, with the revolution. Uh, so it seems like every, every yeah. epoch sort of thinks they're at that moment. <laughs> but it's also the problem of, of who the we, we is, uh, uh -huh. who are experiencing this. I mean, because, uh, I mean, we are living, the three of us here now discussing are perhaps living similar lives in that uh, sense, but there are a lot of people on the planet who probably don't experience uh, time moving faster and, and being more dense and, you know, who can't get out on, on social media because the, they just don't have electricity that often every weekend. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think there is certainly a problem of kind of perspective and point of view here as well. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, uh, Justin, about what you were saying and I'm like, well, yeah, of course, yeah, they all, maybe they all experienced that phenomenon because, well, maybe this is a real phenomenon at all points in history, right? And one, one of the big takeaways I took from uh, Karen Barad's work was that space-time is not like a container but something that is produced in and among the objects and relations that exist within it that make it up. On that view, I guess it, you could be having increased density or, or time could be getting faster. More is happening. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking here of like, um, you know, Aristotle famously links up movement in time. There's yeah. no time without movement. There's no movement without time. Uh, and I think what part of what McKenna is doing is sort of substituting for movements the idea of like novelty or events. That that uh, you know the rate of time is directly sort of tacked to the number of events, um, which I think opens up interesting questions 
uh, when we think of perspective around what qualifies as an event for McKenna, you know, so something like the the dropping of the bomb of um, on Hiroshima for him is a absolutely fundamental event in, in human history. Um, but uh, the question for me is, okay, well, let's look at all the events that he's tacking out and how many of those are happening uh, to Western Europeans, uh, right. to, to <laughs> Americans, North Americans, like basically like how much of this is happening to white people. And I, and I suspect maybe I'm wrong, but I suspect that what you're going to see is a lot of the events that he's charting to, for this acceleration are happening to, uh, to, to his cultural milieu, oh. um, which I think makes me a, a little, uh, I don't know, a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, and that is, I guess, precisely the. I mean, that's a critique embedded in the, of, in the critique of the container notion of time, because that is precisely the kind of Western uh, linearity, which is also a Christian, the Christian kind of salvation narrative that we came from somewhere and we're going somewhere, and and we are in the middle right now, and this is where it's happening. But so so kind of when people come from from somewhere else uh, in the world, from kind of uh, talking from, from the side, it's like, oh, so how do we incorporate this in our notion of time? And it's still that kind of story that he's telling, which uh, is certainly situated in, in the place where he's at right now. <laughs> That's a bit... Uh, um, yeah, it's definitely a trope that, you know, keeps returning, so let's keep yeah. going there. Billion years ago, so sometime, somehow, as we approach the present, we find ourselves in an ever-denser realm of activity, interrelationship, connectivity, and the result of this is more of the same, producing a shrinking globe, ever more immersive technologies, a dissolution of political, social, gender, and class boundaries of all sorts. So that's what I mean when I say the universe is speeding up. You know, before the advent of, of man, of human beings, the fastest changes on this planet of any consequence were genetic changes, changes in the genomes of plants and animals. Well, biologists know that for a fruit fly to add a spur to its leg, for a bird to change its plumage, you need hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of years of evolutionary time. With the advent of human beings using spoken language, a, a new kind of possibility was born. It's called epigenetic change. In other words, change which is not about genes, but which is about uh, languages, customs, behaviors of human beings. Epigenetic change reaches its uh, dramatic culmination in speech, writing, uh, and communication of all sorts. And so the carriers of epigenetic change, the human beings, are automatically then the carriers of accelerated novelty. And so when you look at, let's say, evolution on a coral reef, and you compare it, let's say, to the evolution of political ideas in modern Europe, obviously modern Europe's rate of change in this domain is thousands of times faster. So by moving from the genetic to the epigenetic realm, we have vastly accelerated all kinds of processes. Now we appear to be about to move from the strictly human 
domain to the human-machine symbiosis domain. And of course, machines process information, make connections, and do their work at a rate thousands of times faster than any human being can work. So we see again a progressive acceleration of the process of creating and maintaining varieties of connectivity. And that's what I mean by time is speeding up. Your description of the process by which you develop the time wave theory. I understand, I read um, uh, um, True Hallucination, so I understand it took you some years to kind of work it all out. Yes, in the Amazon, all was chaos and mythic revelation, but I knew that you couldn't bring that back as a scientific theory, and my bias has always been toward science. And out of these many intuitions and revelations, I discerned a thread which was about time. Uh, it began with a conversation with this Logos entity where it said to me, did you know every day is composed of four other days? And I said, no, I not only didn't know that, it's never occurred to me. <laughs> no, I had no idea. Thank you for bringing that to my attention, Logos entity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this is dangerously close to the time cube hypothesis at this point. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I just feel like as an interviewer, that's immediately where I'm cutting in and be like, say no, say more about this <laughs> Logos entity. <laughs> I mean, famously, he's known for like these things called machine elves. And if you've ever taken like a higher dose of uh, psychedelics, you might know kind of what he means by that. Yeah, I think those kind of experiences would help a lot in listening to it. I mean, it's all based on those kind of experiences, really. Oh, yeah. That's where he got his first insights, and then and then he just started counting on, <laughs> on if it could be true or not. I want to say something about, about the speed, because, and this also relates to when I was at um, Claudio Carvalho's seminar a couple of years ago, and we listen to crickets singing, uh, and uh, you know they, they sing at a at a high speed. And then if you slow it down to like hours, so that you would, so that the crickets like enter human time. If you speed it down to like the uh, normal time lifetime for a, a human, then and you listen to their song, it's like a church choir. It's really really beautiful. It's fantastic. So we sat in that seminar room listening to to that and also then experience it, the difference of time within different species and also the difference of time when it comes to you know mountains they are also kind of moving but it's just moving really slowly and and of course what many argue in like uh, animal activist movements and so on is that that uh, humanity are speed we're trying every every species and plant to follow our speed <laughs> kind of we need to we need the cows to grow grow really fast so that we can eat them as fast you know and, and the crops to grow fast and so we're speeding things up or adapting uh, the life cycles lifespan to, to our speed but, and then and then that also makes me a bit I, I and then I don't really like this way of of talking about everything speeding up because everything is going in their own speed. I mean, time is different for a cricket 
than it is for us. Uh-huh. That was almost exactly where I wanted to go with this. I, all I could think of was I, um, uh, von Uxkuhl, who's the German uh, early 20th or late 19th, early 20th century uh, biologist. He has this, this idea of the Umwelt, uh, where this idea, you know, so his, his most famous study is he does a, um, a study of what is, what is the world like to a tick? Um, and so he looks at, you know, sort of biologically speaking, you know, what forms of relationship can a tick have? Well, they can sense heat, they can, they can sense moisture, um, they, uh, you know, they have extremely limited sight, so it's not going to be a world that's based around sight. Uh, and, and so he uses all of these factors in order to try to reconstruct, you know, what would life be like for a, a tick? It's sort of the opposite of that famous, you know, um, you know, what is it like to be a bat with the, the conclusion is we can't know. Um, Uxkuhl says, yeah, we can know actually. If we put a bunch of work into it, uh, we can start to figure out what that world is like. And and I and I think part of what he discovers is that the the worlds at different scales and for different types of creatures are, are fundamentally different. And I and I think you're right to suggest that the times are different for different creatures. And I think also even among humans, I think if you talk about different cultures, what you're going to find is that that time moves really differently depending on what culture you're in, depending on what point even within your own lifespan you are. You know. It's the famous thing that when you're you're a little kid, time moves really slowly. And when you're an adult, you sort of blink and another year's gone by. Um, and so I think that this idea that there was there was one thing called time that's speeding up. Um, I don't know. I'm, 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 I think like like you, Petra, I think I'm a, a little skeptical and I and I want to I want to think about the ways that that our world is composed of these these different times moving at, at different speeds. So I'm, I'm thinking, I was recently listening to uh, Box Canon A4, uh, which is where he has one melody that's being played at multiple levels um, at different speeds. And it's when you recognize that, oh, this is the same melody, but it's but here it's playing at one speed, here it's playing at half speed, here it's playing at quarter speed, here it's playing at a third speed, uh, that when you recognize those differences, uh, then that's where the beauty emerges, is that the, the real complexity is not everything speeding up together, but rather the the ways in which their, their movements at different speeds uh, creates new sort of vibrancy and dynamic in life. of four other days. And I said, no, I not only didn't know that, it's never occurred to me. What a bizarre idea. Well, so this this idea then of a time being a resonance created by other times, not immediately before or after it, as in scientific causality, but somehow a day centuries ago, centuries in the future, come together to create an interference pattern that creates the unique moment. So that was uh, one of the basic assumptions. And then the structure on which this all was hung was uh, the I Ching, 
which may seem exotic to American and European audiences, but which is, of course, as familiar to anyone in Chinese society as the Declaration of Independence is to us. And what is the I Ching? Well, it's a very ancient uh, method of divining and predicting the future based on the idea that every moment can be symbolized by a, a unique ideogram, which is somehow uh, uh, its essence, much in the way that science believes you can explain all nature with 108 elements. The ancient Chinese took the position that time itself was made of elements. My style of thinking is scientific enough that uh, if I were to say to somebody, I propose a revolution in physics based on what I know about an ancient Chinese divinatory system, that would seem foolish to me. It seems occult. It seems unscientific. Uh, why should an ancient Chinese book of divination hold any insight whatsoever for modern physics? But the uncanny thing Hear me about out here. I got, I got something. is that it seems to work. <laughs> Even in the hands of its critics, it seems to work. So let me try out a metaphor on you, which I think makes much more clear uh, what's going on here. Visualize for a moment sand dunes. And notice when you look at these sand dunes in your mind that they look like wind. Sand dunes look like wind in some sense. Well, then analyze the situation. What is wind? Wind is a pressure variant phenomena that fluctuates over time. Uh, in a way, the sand grains moved about by the wind are like a lower dimensional slice of the wind itself. And from photographic analysis of dunes, you can calculate the speed and duration of the wind that made them. So the dune is a lower dimensional slice of time, of the wind ebbing and flowing that made it. Well, now let's change the metaphor a little bit. Instead of grains of sand, let's think of genes. Instead of a windstorm, Let's think of a billion years of evolution. It moves the genes around in a pattern, which is a lower dimensional slice of the force which created the situation. In other words, on every living organism, there is the imprint of the higher dimensional force which made it. Now, somebody could say, well, that's God. Well, but in a scientific context, we don't speak like that. But whatever it is that made blind matter in... I, I just love uh, that uh, we, we, we can't speak of God. Now, anyway, so the Logos creature was speaking. <laughs> <laughs> he really does cut. There is like this thing of wanting to have his cake and eat it too. Like I want all my tripped out machine elf stuff. And then also talk about it's just science, man. You know, <laughs> but I love that juxtaposition. I don't know. He, he makes it. He's a great storyteller, you know.
so what this reminds me a lot of is um, uh, Jake Given, who who I know you you know as well. Um, he's done a lot of work on uh, magical texts, mm-hmm. um, you know, medieval magical texts. And the thing that's really fun about medieval magical texts is they speak the exact same way as McKenna. They're like, they're like, and then you put all of these things together and it allows you to cast, uh, you know, cast out the demon. And why can it do that? Well, because, and then they start giving like this medieval <laughs> science and it's right. you know, and, and so there's this way, there's like a materialism to the demonology of the material uh, of yes. the medieval world. And yes. I think in the same way, there's sort of a materialism to, you know, his, his whatever space elves or whatever you called them, um, that, that he wants to, he wants to insist that it all ultimately resolves back down to something like a materialism in some sense. When he starts talking about this stuff, I never kind of hear it in a reductive sense. And I, in fact, sometimes I feel like, like I was just kind of suggesting that he will sometimes play fast and loose with the mathematics or something. And I have no way to evaluate what he's, what he's really up to. Um, other people have, uh, from what I understand, looked at his work, like with the time wave theory and have like, you know, actual criticisms. And I don't know, I don't know how to evaluate their criticisms either. Yeah. And isn't, I mean, the way that he just now in this passage kind of hinted at that higher dimension, I I feel that he's definitely losing ground (laughs) or I mean that he's not, he's the, the materialism that, that he kind of wants to, he wants to be more grounded than I think he ends up being. Simply, mm-hmm. that's a that's a good way to put it. All right. Into whales, squirrels, and human beings, it left its calling card inside each human being, each squirrel, each whale. That's that's like straight up Imago Day, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's the DNA. Well, the DNA codons are based on a system of 64, exactly like the I Ching. So my belief is that someone, some group of people thousands of years ago, looked into human organism, looked by meditative techniques into the center of their own beings, and they were not mystics, nor were they empiricists. They were simply curious. But at the center of the meditative experience, they saw an ebb and flow, an energy field that was in a constant state of flux. And they asked themselves, how many elements are necessary to describe this energy field? And the answer was more than 10 less than a thousand, more than 20, less than 500. And when they finally got it worked out, lo and behold, 64 situations are all the possible potential situations there are. Out of 64 subtypes of time, you can create everything from the coronation of Queen Mary to the resignation of Madonna out of 64 types of time. So really, what the I Ching is, is not a book of Chinese mysticism. It's a book of uh, molecular dynamics that sees through biology to the physics that allowed biology to come into existence. 
And um, I, I'll argue this with anybody in the field, regardless of how hardcore an empiricist they claim themselves to be, because uh, I think uh, the coincidence between the structure of the I Ching and the structure of the DNA is staggering. It's not a simple correspondence between 64 and 64. All the processes that occur in DNA can be easily modeled uh, with the six-line hexagrams that make up uh, the I Ching. It's almost as though Western science was fascinated by energy. For 5,000 years, we pursued understanding energy. And this process ends with thermal nuclear explosions in the deserts of the American Southwest. We can light the fire that burns in the heart of the distant stars. We know how to do that. That's what the Western mind achieved, political issues aside. The Eastern mind was not interested in energy. It was interested in time. And they spent 5,000 years deconstructing it, looking at it. And you don't use atom smashers. You don't use enormous physical pressure. It's a different problem, and you bring different tools to bear. You meditate. You look inside yourself. You study the m movement of water around pebbles. You consider the situation. You study history. In any case, the bottom line is, the people who pursued this understanding of time achieved as sophisticated a relationship to time as the Western relationship to matter expressed through our ability to trigger fusion and fission. So there's a great deal for us to learn in the West from these Oriental efforts to understand time. And it is not necessarily mystical. What I did was entirely mathematical. It's not transparent to a person who has not studied mathematics. But to a professional mathematician, it's utterly trivial. There's nothing occult about it. And uh, I, I think true understanding can be communicated and formally described with mathematics. And that's what we have here. We're on the brink of a fusion of Western science with quote-unquote Eastern mysticism. Nothing mystical about it except that we call it mysticism. But the fusion of these two viewpoints is going to give us a complete understanding of the universe of space, time, matter, and energy. I want to go to this uh, stuff about the strange attractor at the end of history. We right. never ever, you know, considered that notion that we are being pulled as opposed to simply just going on forever and ever. And that's for sure something that people are going to go, huh? Well, you know, in the 19th century, if you spoke of nature having a purpose, uh, you were thought to be anti-evolution. Because in the 19th century, there was great pain to eliminate anything like preformation or teleology or purpose or God, all these things that were, they were trying to eliminate from evolutionary theory. And until very recently in scientific thought, the idea has been that uh, events are pushed by the causal necessity embedded in the events which preceded them. 
In other words, if you ask the question, what is the most important event in terms of, or moment in terms of shaping this moment, the answer would be the moment just before this moment, because it hands on the, the energy, the space, the time. Recently, mathematicians have evolved what they call the notion of attractors or strange attractors in some cases. And these are processes where uh, a dynamic is not pushed by causal necessity from behind, but it's pulled by a point in the future. You could almost say, for example, if you release a ball bearing up near the rim of a bowl, that its attractor is the bottom of the bowl. And the ball bearing will roll down to the bottom, then halfway up the side, then up the side in shorter and shorter cycles until it finally comes to rest in the exact bottom of, uh, of the bowl. Well, from the point of view of the new mathematics, the bottom of the bowl is a basin of attraction and the ball bearing has fallen under its influence. So I... Uh, have always doubted that evolutionary theory without purpose, without teleology, could produce as complex a world as we see around us in as short a time, five billion years, as the life of the earth. It seemed more as though these processes were not just wandering across a flat Epigenetic, uh, flat genetic landscape. They were, the, the process of biological evolution was actually being channeled between high walls. In other words, it could move, it had some motion this way, some this, but its forward direction was uh, inevitable. And this is the idea of an attractor that what the universe is doing is it is under the sway of what I call the transcendental object at the end of time. And that is this domain of hyperconnectivity, that it would be perfect novelty. And all nature aspires for this state of perfect novelty. You could almost say that nature abhors habit. And so all right, what do we think about this? What are you saying here? I think that the idea of, of the push and pull isn't, I mean, it's still within the same kind of economy of the, of, of a, I mean, he's still stuck in that kind of linear time frame that just, I mean, it's just, it's just a sense of, of from where, from where the force kind of comes from. Mm actually rethinking the structure of how we understand temporality and, and spatiality. Yeah, I hear a lot of Whitehead and like no Deleuze. Exactly. I, I thought he was, he was kind of, you know, when uh, I think sometime in the beginning when talking about um, the universe as this complex machine, mm. uh, I mean, he's touching upon kind mm. of Deleuzean tropes and, and ideas. Uh, but then, since it's all set within this kind of progressive or and or kind of uh, developmental way of thinking, it's uh, yeah. And in eschatology, like what he says, it's going to be there's some omega point, right? There's um, uh, a a an epoch of of perfect novelty. You know, like I don't even know what that means. That sounds like chaos. <laughs> I think it is chaos. 
And yeah. you know that there are these uh, the acceleration lists uh, with their manifesto, uh, who um, were partly inspired by McKenna and others who actually wanted things to speed up in order for for uh, I mean you ha you have these ideas in, in many many places I think that uh, that if we speed things up uh, capitalism will kind of turn in on itself either into kind of a complete chaos so that everything <laughs> would just go down uh, or uh, somehow miraculously turn into its opposite <laughs> those kind of ideas that if, if only we allow and embrace uh, this uh, the acceleration of time um we will well, we'll we'll just be able to restore whatever it is that we are losing in the current uh, uh, acceleration. And and I think that that's really interesting because you know the logic there is that there are there are certain periodic crises within capitalism and that you can map these out and that if you can accelerate, what you can do is you can keep compressing the time between uh, between crises until it collapses to zero, at which point you have perpetual crisis. And that the idea, you know, capitalism under per perpetual crisis is is going to sort of self-deconstruct, I think is, is part of yeah. the logic here. And it makes me go back to, you know, McKenna and, and think, so if time is compressing, if events are are compressing this way, then you're gonna reach a, you know, if you reach his omega point, it seems that'll be a moment of pure eventalness. I don't even know what you'd call that, where it's every event has stacked on top of itself simultaneously and and there is there is no longer any gap. And and I think you're 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 right, Petra, to say that that what he's describing there is pure chaos. And so so the transcendental object seems to be a state of absolute chaos in some sense. Right, but he still frames all of this eschatological vision as it, earlier on he talks about how it's producing novelty, greater and greater novelty, but also greater and greater organization. Right, so there's a there's a there's this strange contradiction in it that makes me think that there is an occult dimension here that brings to mind the symbol of the Ouroboros. Mm. Yeah, the, strangely, the the place my mind went where I think. Trying to think of of where is this manifesting artistically or like aesthetically? Yeah. Um, uh, I think uh, you see this in in um, movies like Interstellar and uh, in Tenet. Um, what's his face? Um, uh, Christopher Nolan. I think Christopher Nolan is is really trying to tackle similar ideas as McKenna when it comes to the relationship of time. So you know, in Interstellar, for example, famously, you know, it is the future that literally calls in order to rescue rescue the present and to open up this this wormhole in order to to save present humanity. Um, and I and I think what the the sort of underlying aesthetic idea there for for Nolan is this idea of the reversibility of time in some sense that ends up being the, yeah. the founding idea of Tenet. Is this is this idea of of time can both push and and pull, and he he wants to explore it. I think at, at, at a sort of emotional level. Um, so I think he's really interested in things like trauma. Um, but I think that that ultimately it's the same idea that there is there is an an instinct uh, that time doesn't only function one way. And yeah. that something really interesting can come if we begin to think through what it would look like for time to not function in, in only one direction. It also makes me think. But but when I was uh, when I did into uh, Orthodox liturgy and uh, iconographic old uh, like Russian uh, iconography and the way in which uh, God uh, is depicted as beyond time and space. 
and and at first I just thought, well, well, that's just the transcendent kind of idea of the one beyond whatever we are, you know. But then going into that and going into the way in which that was artistically uh, expressed in 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 uh, uh, Russian iconography, you can see that kind of when when you try to view things from a point outside of time and space, which the icon painter tries try to do, then that completely <laughs> misses up reality. So that kind of buildings turn kind of cubistic and, and people are, it's like, you can't, you can't tell, it's, it's not three dimensional, it's neither, uh, and time is not linear, but you can say in a liturgy, for instance, that Jesus who was rose today is dying tomorrow kind of thing. It's like, mixing things up and, and and in that sense that the god notion if you if you place kind of the omega point outside our time and place then uh, then that also then that creates both that kind of contraction of time and that uh, disorganization of the way in which we experience it so uh, which i guess from a human point of view would be less and less organized and more and more chaotic but that that would be kind of the orthodox kind of true experience of the transcendent. All right. I don't know if we're going to make it through this. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure either. It will be. How about this? How about we go for 10, we go for 10, 15 more minutes and then we'll, we'll have to do a part two and, and wrap this up another time. Yep. That's good. Okay, cool. <laughs> so it seeks the novel by uh, producing various kinds of phenomena at every level in biology, chemistry, and society. And so there really is a purpose to the universe. Its purpose is this state of hyper-complexification in which all of its points become related to each other, become what mathematicians call cotangent. And, uh, it gives the universe the feeling of being imbued with a caring presence. It makes it appear Amen. as though nature is tending toward something and that our, and it changes our own ethical and moral position in the universe. Because, you know, science tells us that we're the products of a cosmic accident. We're at the edge of an ordinary galaxy in an ordinary star system, and we're damn lucky to be here. And that's it. That's our place, a very existential notion of our place in the cosmos. But if you take this other point of view, that process is under the influence of an attractor, and that the value the attractor is maximizing is novelty, then suddenly, for the first time in 500 years, human beings are moved back to the center of the stage because we are the most novel thing on this planet. We are everything biology is, plus technology, language, politics, philosophy, art, so forth and so on. So suddenly human beings become important, not mere cosmic witnesses to a meaningless cosmos, but the cutting edge of a cosmos that glories in order and is moving toward higher states of order. And at the present moment, we are uh, the carriers. Once it was 
the volcanic processes that shaped this planet. Once it was the life of the early oceans. Once it was the great dinosaurs. But today, humanity represents the cutting edge of complexity and, uh, and uh, this process of moving toward complexification. So it, without invoking God or any sort of uh, uh, myth, you give meaning to human life. What is man's purpose? To advance and preserve novelty. You know, this is an ethical position. It means you don't replace rainforests with pastures. You don't censor books. You don't uh, lean on people who make gender choices different from yours. It, no, the purpose of, of being a human is to complexify reality even more, to hand on a more diverse, more complicated, more multi basic universe to our children. And when this process of complexification reaches the omega point, uh, it, it, will, it will fulfill, I believe, the expectations of all of these religions, but it will fulfill it in a mature, scientific, and, uh, and uh, universal way that these religions all lack because they all reflect their parochial origins. <laughs> that, that's so, I mean, that's so beautiful, but, but it's so sad also because he's <laughs> just standing in that moment in 1999 before we all woke up and realized that we're not going to hand up uh, over a beautiful complexity to our children, but actually an extinction of species, and there will only be a few left. So, but 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 it's interesting also with with the kind of the idea of the resilience, you know, resilience thinkers. Um, if you apply uh, kind of that that kind of biological uh, notion of complexity being the keys to survival. Uh, is kind of at odds with the way in which both kind of scientific thinkers and of course theologians try to uh, simplify things saying that <laughs> no it, it's it's kind of the one story that you should listen to mm -hmm. and and what he's saying is no it's actually preserving complexity and the multiple species and and the many voices and the many ideas that is what will uh, that is what is resilient, which is, of course, in, a, in an ecological setting, in a, in, a, in a biosphere, that is precisely how it works. And that is the key to survival is, is that, so I mean, even thought would be more resilient if we would have many different ways of thinking, because then at least one, <laughs> one way would survive. Um, yeah, he's telling one story, he's giving a big narrative, but it's ultimately about, he kind of points it back to complexification, plurality. Yeah. And so I like, I can get on board with that kind of vision. And I like, I yeah. like his optimism. We have the uh, advantage, or I don't know what you'd want to call it, or <laughs> of, we're, of being here in 2021 and, you know, kind of be, be able to have a little fun with him. But I appreciate his optimism. And like, I miss that kind of optimism. And I'm, and I'm thinking about like, you know how like Nietzsche wrote a lot about health, lionized, the strong, the uberman and all this stuff, right? Because he was so fucking sick. <laughs> and I feel like, I don't know, maybe this isn't fair to do to uh, our friend Terrence, but like, I feel like 
his optimism is really kind of rooted in a deeper pessimism about like he see, he's a smart guy. He sees mm-hmm. where this is all going and he's like, well, we got two choices here. Either it's all going to go to shit or the entire universe is going to give us this glorious new reality that we're a part of. And like, I don't know. I like that vision. Whenever, whenever he starts talking about that stuff, like he was just preaching in that section. Yeah. And I know I, I threw in like a uh, sort of sarcastic amen, but um, you know. <laughs> oh, do you regret that now? Yeah. yeah, now I regret it. Now I want to be like, yes, my brother. Yes, brother McKenna. <laughs> Tell us how it is. Oh, yeah. And I mean, we do need prophets. It's so easy to just sit and, and I mean, that's a problem with the critical theory that it's so critical and it, it doesn't construct any new worlds, which I think he's actually trying to do Yeah. in a way. And, and I think something that is interesting because like, I, I felt myself ping-ponging during that last piece is the way that he sits outside of the academic world means that he doesn't take exactly, uh, his, his thought doesn't fit into any of the, the sort of positions or the sides within the academic world, which I find really interesting. You know, so at, at, he's this proponent of, of diversity and multiplicity and all of that, which you could, you know, you could link up as we have a few times to process thinking and to lose and in new materialism and all of these things. And yet he's also like sort of stunningly anthropocentric, right? Because mm-hmm. at a certain point he wants to say, you know, humans are the, the peak of this moment, which, you know, it's not full anthropocentrism because he wants to say, then there'll be something that comes next, which I think for him, he thinks is going to be uh, some sort of a human technological hybrid. Um, uh, you know, the sort of the cyborg, cyborg imagery. Um, and the Harawayan vision. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I don't think he goes full anthropocentrism. And yet at the same time, he's he affirms humanity as as unique in a way yeah. that feels really theological. And, and, and so I found myself sort of ping-ponging because it's like, like he is he is unpigeonholable in, in modern discourse or at least modern academic discourse. And I think you can only do that if you, like him, sit outside of that discourse in a certain sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and it makes it hard to make those kinds of critiques really stick at the end of the day, right? Because he's constantly providing caveats and qualifying mm-hmm. and... I don't want to say contradicting, although there are moments where I'm just like, I'm not sure what he's saying. <laughs> um, but yeah, that whole question of uh, his or just anthropomorphism or anthropocentrism in, in general is one that I've been kind of thinking more about because as much as I appreciate sort of new materialist perspectives, object orientology and stuff like this, I cannot escape my own subjectivity. And I think this is maybe what he's doing in, the, in like in the background, like the script he's running. He's like running multiple centers of discourse, right? So he's got this sort of anthropocentrism, but he's also got this bigger sort of cosmological vision. He's got an ecological vision. And he, he kind of, I think he's switching back and forth between them um, and not announcing when he's doing those things. Yeah, no, and I guess that's a way in which he is still decentering the human. And I mean, since he's starting in the universe that, that does uh, minimize and I think he seems like he's he himself is actually surprised when he ends up in a place where we are actually at the center (laughs) so uh, so in that sense uh, I think that he is I mean he he does relate to a kind of Haraway way of thinking because uh, um, humans are something that is constantly constructed also and that we are our technology, and that is what makes us right now uh, at the height of complexity. And, and, I, and I think meaningfully, you know, 
the end game for him, you know, whatever this, the transcendental object, Omega point, whatever that is, it doesn't, it, he doesn't theorize it as a big person. I think this is why he's allergic to God language is I think for him, God language is always like a person, but bigger in the sort of foyer buck sense. Uh, and, and I think he, he, he really wants to think that wherever this is going, it is not just going to be more of us but that there's something there, there's, you know, to use his language, there is genuine novelty coming, um, which I appreciate. I think there's something really cool there. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, I think that's a really good place to stop. We got about, just about halfway through it. Um, yeah, we'll have to do this. Um, we'll have to set something up and wrap this up soon. Um, but this was a lot of fun. Thanks guys. Thanks yes, for setting thank this up. You. Any um, final thoughts? I hope we get some time next time to think about what it's like to be him. What do you mean? Uh, just the fact that, you know, just taking yourself and your ideas so seriously, so you just never stop talking. I mean, we are like that in a way as well, I guess, but, but he's worse. I mean, what, what, what kind of personality enables that and allows that? I just think he's a completely, I think he's just like slightly kind of like Asperger-ish and he looks, <laughs> he's a little bit, a bit like a bird. Do you see what I, a bird? Yeah. But like, no, he's definitely like on this. He's definitely like slightly on, on the, uh, on the spectrum, I think. Right. He's just probably just, he's just a super nerd. He's that's his deal. He's a super nerd. He doesn't care. This is what he's into. Um, this is what he's going to talk about. Yeah. So is he then connected? That's a question. That is a good question. Yeah, we'll see. So <laughs> how about for next time? We come <laughs> back, each of us gives two minutes speaking in the voice of Terrence McKenna. Yeah, our inner McKenna's. <laughs> to that point. Apparently in, this is one of the things we didn't talk about, but he and his brother, Dennis, basically introduced home-growing uh, mushrooms. They basically popularized the method um, by which most people do it. Like I, I... I don't care. Nobody's listening to this show. That's, that's, that's good care. But like a couple of years ago, I used his method and I grew some, some magic mushrooms over here. And oh, is that um, why you started listening to him? Watching the YouTube videos? No, no, it's not. <laughs> I, it's not. Um, I don't know why I started listening to him, but what was the, what was the point of that? Video. Oh, sorry. I remembered what it was in that book about the mushroom cultivation. He does like a few pages where he speaks as the mushroom. Oh, yes. He embody, he takes on the role of the mushroom and then proceeds to kind of explain like why he's here, where he came from. I'll see if I can fucking find that because that's like, that's a trip, pun intended. Oh yeah, that's fine. But yeah, that's beautiful. And that, doesn't that end then on the kind of uh, object-oriented ontology kind of note? I've been, I've been rereading uh, Graham Harmon and, and his, his uh, state stating that uh, it's obligatory to try to think beyond. I mean, we must try. He's actually trying to think beyond the human uh, and and to think from a kind of post-human standpoint. Or, and I mean, we can't, we'll never succeed, but yeah, perhaps it's our obligation to try to talk like mushrooms. All right. <laughs> Have a good one. See you guys. I'll, I'll see you later tonight, actually. <laughs> Oh, and that's tonight. Okay, yeah. I'll see you later. All right. Have a good one. Bye, guys. Bye.
So thanks again to Justin for coming and hanging out with uh, Petra and I. We had a good time. Petra and I? No, Petra and me. Me and Petra. Um, so yeah, we're, uh, we're going to do part two, I think, in a few days, uh, which I'm looking forward to. And I actually really like this format. Um, maybe we'll do more things like this. It's kind of low-hanging fruit, right? You just hit a video and then talk shit about it. Kind of like that. Graphic, sound design, and outro music by Matt Baker. See you next time.